right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Honest Defense. My guest today is Joseph F. Johnston, Jr. Joe is a graduate of Harvard Law School. He practiced law in New York City and Washington, D.C. He was a visiting lecturer at the University of Virginia Law School, and he is a member of the American Law Institute. He's also the author of the new book, The Decline of Nations, Lessons for Strengthening America at Home and in the World. Joe, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure, Eric. Glad to be with you. So while I was reading your book, I was regularly reminded of this this meme that's been common on the Internet. It's been around for a few years, and I'm not sure how invested in meme culture you are, but there's this meme that's been on the Internet for a while that says, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times. And that seemed to summarize so much of, of what your book was about, is, is basically that societies are they go through these cycles where you have people who, who build up strong societies. And once the society reaches a certain level of prosperity, people kind of ease up and, and they get a little bit softer. And that, that softness kind of is what leads to a decline in that society. Does that, is that a good summary generally of, of your well, main theme? Well, it is, Eric. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the thesis of Ibn Khaldun, the 14th century Arab philosopher, who I quote in the first chapter of my book, and, and Khaldun's theory uh, was having observed a lot of civilizations, and he was familiar not only with classical society, but with the Arab societies of his day, that when a society starts out, they're tough, they're rough, they're independent, they're solid, they're courageous, they're fighters, they're warriors, and, and they, they build the society. Then in the next generation, uh, they get a little more luxurious, and then in the next generation, they get more luxurious, and they become comfortable, and they become soft, and they become weak, and they become accustomed to luxury, and no longer uh, are willing to bear the hardships that are necessary to sustain a strong, strong society. And that was Khaldun's theory, and it's not always true, of course, but nations do tend to decline and get weaker as they become more prosperous. And uh, one of the main examples that you cite in the book is the Roman Empire. Yes. What are, What are the parallels that you see between Rome and where we are today? Well, there are there are some parallels. Uh, the Roman Empire was in, in the Republic. The Roman, the Roman Republic was a, a strong republic led by strong men, and it, it had checks and balances. It had a Senate. It had tribunes of the people. It had a balance and mixed constitutions. And then in the first century B.C., it declined, and uh, it turned into an empire, which featured strong centralized government, and became an administrative tyranny and eventually collapsed, among other things, because it was overrun by migrants crossing in huge numbers across the borders, which they could not control and which they could not assimilate. And that, of course, has some meaning for us today. It, there, there's a, a criticism that 
it's just inevitable that societies are going to centralize that as long as you have any sort of of power source of power center that people are going to form alliances form groups to get control of that power and whoever is in control is going to just support more power for themselves sure is it inevitable this this cycle no it's not and of course our founding fathers were very aware of those tendencies and they set up a republic that was specifically designed to counteract those centralizing tendencies. A federal republic based on strong states and, and there was a limited government where the federal government, the central government had limited powers and the states had all the residual powers and they had a, an electoral system, the electoral college and, and a system of checks and balances that was specifically designed to counteract those powers. And that worked for a while, for quite a while. Then in the 20th century, you had the progressive movement, Woodrow Wilson and, and so forth, and you had centralizing tendencies that now have gotten out of control. And we have this uh, huge federal government here in Washington. I'm looking out my window. I can see the Washington Monument. And it is this gigantic federal administrative welfare state that has taken much of the vitality away from the federal structure that our founders founded. What historically could have been done to have have stopped that that state from growing? Because I, I think back to Lysander Spooner was a, a writer and an abolitionist back in the 1800s. And, and back then he was complaining about the size of the federal government even even then. And, you know, he argued that the Constitution either allowed the government to grow the way it has or it's been – I, I think the quote was either the, the Constitution permitted the government to grow or it was unable to stop it. That we've had this Constitution in place that, that had these beautiful ideas, but if you don't have people who are going to respect the limits of power and limits of government that are placed by the Constitution, it's really just words on a piece of paper. Well, that's right, and that's what Jefferson said. He said, there's always a danger of tyranny, and, and you have to continually fight against that. And, and, and uh, in the 20th century, it broke down for reasons which are extremely complex. Part of it was the urbanization and the growth of cities. And, and uh, you know, sort of the, the boss system and, and Federal power increased and the states simply were not able to keep up with it or unwilling to keep up with preserving the balances and checks and balances that preserved individual freedom and individual liberty. Is there a particular moment that you can say this is when you know a society has turned from a, a republic into an empire. Is there is there some thread line that that goes through Rome and and well, we can talk about Britain as well and and now America. Well, it's 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 hard to identify, Eric. Uh, certainly in the Roman Empire, it was in the first century B.C. Well, it, it, the end of the second century B.C. The revolt of the Gracchi, and and military leaders started to come into political power and eventually under Julius Caesar, the biggest military leader assumed complete power and under his adopted son, Octavian, who became Augustus, 
they eliminated the balance of power that existed in the Republic and the empire took over. Now, in subsequent governments, you have seen something like that happen, never quite that dramatic. And certainly in the United States, we have never lost completely. We still have a federal system and the states have, still have a good deal of power, but they have ceded a lot of that power to the federal government. And I think probably the crucial episode was the, the New Deal under Franklin D. Roosevelt, in which uh, the federal government assumed more and more power. They created these monster bureaucracies and agencies, and the administrative agencies were delegated power from Congress, and Congress simply ceded too much power to those administrative agencies, and they began to govern without the consent of Congress. And now you have a, a situation where Congress has delegated too much power to the federal bureaucracy, and it's it's hard to control. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from the book, you're, this is, you're talking about the fall of the Roman Empire, and you say, the aristocracy contributed to its own downfall by abject cowardice and loss of nerve. In return for wealth, dignity, and meaningless honors, they accepted a position of helpless subservience to the emperor and the generals. And that passage just spoke so much to me because it does feel like today there is a there's a cowardice among people with money and with power who are unwilling to to speak out about some of the 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 negative aspects of society that, that I'm sure they have to see but it seems like they're they're happy living their life and enjoying their riches and kind of just allowing things to to collapse around them do you, is that do you see that parallel today yes yes definitely uh the welfare state is is sort of a soporific. It, it lulls people into a sense that, well, we're going to get what we want, so we'll just sit back and enjoy it, rather than to defend our individual liberties. And as Jefferson and Madison and others said, you have to be willing to defend your individual liberties. And if you don't, you're going to lose them. And that's, that's a, a constant danger in republics and one which we have to be aware of. Yeah, that seems to be the biggest difference between kind of the founding era and now is that you had people like Washington who were men of wealth who are willing to sacrifice all of their wealth and their, their lives for these principles that they believed in. Right, and they had a, they had a sense of civic duty. Right. Washington particularly in all of his speeches had a terrific sense that you have, those of wealth have also obligations. We don't just have rights, we also have obligations. Today, everybody talks about rights, but nobody talks about duties and obligations. And once the wealthy and the powerful think only of their selves and only of their only power and wealth and not of their duties and obligations as citizens, then you're in trouble. Right. Right. That's To me, those sort of things can only come through education and, and ideally education in the home and the way you're raised is you see your parents living out these principles and, and that fills you with a sense of the same principles. I, it's so hard to, you know, I, I listen to a lot of policy experts talk about we can have this policy and that policy to, to try to improve situations. But I think until you start in, invoking these principles and, and putting these principles into young people, young Americans through the home, all these policies are just going to be band-aids. 
Eric, you have put your finger on an extremely important book, which I talk about in the book. I have a whole chapter, chapter five on education, which explores what happened to education in the 20th century. In the beginning, around 1900, in the beginning of the 20th century, we had a, a, a pretty good education system, including public education, in which children were taught in schools uh, the classics. They were taught literature, science, math, history, particularly American history, and civics. They were taught about civic obligations. They learned about the Constitution. They learned about American history, learned about our heroes and about the good parts and the bad parts, because there were some bad parts, racism and slavery and so forth. They learned about that. Now, today, uh, what's being taught in the schools is not as coherent, not as disciplined as what was being taught in the early 20th century. We've virtually forgotten about teaching civics, for example. Kids don't learn about the Constitution. You have a, a conversation today with a kid out of high school or even kids out of college, they barely know what the Constitution is. They don't know, they're not taught, and it's not their fault, it's our fault. And we have not paid attention to what has happened in the educational system. It's just gone, it's gone downhill. We're not teaching, there's, there's a lack of discipline. Uh, we're teaching things like critical race theory in the schools here in Loudoun County, right next door to where I am. It's a, there's a big scandal. I mean, they're teaching children that, you know, white people are evil and sure there's been racism and so forth, which, but we've made a lot of progress in getting over that. Now they're teaching that uh, essentially racism is endemic in American society and there's almost no cure for it. And that's just wrong. It's wrong and it's divisive. And we have to get our, our teachers back in, a, in the mode where they know what to teach and they know how to teach it. And we've forgotten that in large part. Yeah, that's... There are times when I feel like the, I think the public school system is just beyond repair, and that's why yeah. I think it comes down to, to school choice programs and to, to homeschooling and making it easier for parents to homeschool because I, I, I don't see how you reverse what's going on in public schools right now. Right, and the, the teachers' unions have fallen down on the job. Uh, right now, they're more interested in staying home than they are in reopening the schools. Right. You know, so the, the, the schools are just, are just not, not functioning. Public schools are run by the teachers' unions, and they're obstructing the, the the educational process. And it goes all the way up through, I mean, through law school. As, as you know, every law student is required to take a course on constitutional law. I was shocked when I went through that class that we didn't spend five minutes. And I, I went to a great law school. I had great professors, but it's just the way the curriculum is, is that we didn't spend five minutes on the philosophy behind the Constitution or, or the history of its adoption or, or any of the, the principles. It's You go right into the case law and you just kind of follow it historically. Tell me about it. <laughs> I used to teach in law school. And when I taught uh, at a pretty good law school, they taught the constitutional law teachers. I knew several of them were good. There was, they were rigorous. and, and But now I think, uh, as you say, the law schools are now teaching things like critical race theory and, uh, you know, women's studies and things like that that are, that are okay and, and fine to learn, but they're neglecting the basics, which are constitutional law, uh, property, 
contracts, torts, corporate law, things that are absolutely fundamental to, to the running of a, a capitalist society. Well, when you which, were teaching, oh, go ahead. Which we actually are, are in the process of abandoning. Right, right. When you were teaching, did you have the ability to put some of these principles in? Were you able to, to teach oh, the way yes. you wanted to teach? Absolutely. I, I, I taught a course in corporate governance in which I, I taught things like duty of loyalty, duty of care, duty of fairness, uh, s strict obedience to, to, to regulations and so on. Now I think all of that has been uh, largely overlooked in many law schools anymore. How did the students respond? Because my what, what I've found is that people really are interested, whether they're left or right, wherever you are in the political spectrum, people do they're curious about these principles. They do want to learn and they just don't, they're not even aware of their existence because it's not taught in school. So I would think that students would be hungry for that stuff when you're teaching the foundation. They, they, they were when I was, I was teaching in law school in the nineties and they were, the kids were great. They were very interested. They were very responsive. They wanted to learn. Uh, they were eager to learn it. They, they, I mean, I used to go after, after classes and have a beer with them and, and, and talk, they wanted to talk more right. and learn more. Uh, and I think some law schools are still like that, but I, I think, and I think that's still true of students. It's just not, that's not what's presented in front of them. I, right. I, I think there's, cause you, you see it with, with this growing podcast world. There's so many people my age listen to hours and hours of podcasts because that's where you can go to get educated in depth. You can't do it in the schools that you're paying tens of thousands of dollars for you. You go and do it on your own. And even with that, so many people I talk to will spend hours and hours engaging with this stuff because they really are interested in it. And well, there are, not are, just that, but people used to read books there. Right, right. And they don't anymore. I mean, when I was growing up in high school and in, in college, we read, we read great books. And, and during the summertime, we read books. My father insisted on that. He didn't want me just lounging around the swimming pool. I actually had to go out and get a job, and then in my spare time, he, he gave me books to read. Right. And there's something to the the unity of everyone having studied the great books, having known the big philosophers, knowing right. some Shakespeare and knowing That's Aristotle, right. and that you have this shared history and shared culture that can tie people together no matter— no matter what country you came from, no matter what color you are, you can at least say, hey, we have this shared tradition that's gotten us to where we are now. Absolutely. I mean, every, everybody who went to high even in high school, they were reading Moby Dick and they were reading Trollope and Jane Austen and Aldous Huxley and people like that. Uh, that's, that doesn't happen anymore. So that you no longer have this sort of common culture where, as you said a minute ago, uh, everybody sort of knew a, a number of things together, and you could have a civilized conversation uh, on cultural issues. I think that's still possible in uh, in England and in in France and in Germany. I, I travel a good bit, and I, uh, but it's less possible in this country. I I have to tell you again, I I'm optimistic because I know so many people my age who are so interested in having those conversations and our institutions have just failed so miserably at being the facilitators 
of of those conversations and so I, again I, i'm so grateful for alternate media like this because there there is such a hunger and a thirst for this stuff and i to me it is it's the institutions that are failing that's why your book is so fascinating to me because my my overarching question in this whole thing is is it possible for some of these older institutions the universities and the the, the big bloated government agencies can can they is there is there an aspect where they can, if not collapse, but somehow fall by the wayside and newer institutions arise yeah. without a, a, a whole collapse of the society itself? Yeah, it's possible, Eric, but it's difficult. I mean, and you are right. It's not the kids' fault. It's it's our fault. It's it's the it's the society's fault. Uh, nowadays, you 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 have educational institutions that are interested in, in teaching progressive dogma rather than teaching facts and history. I mean, you don't, you don't require memorization. You don't require historical knowledge anymore. They just want to teach whatever is, is popular and, and whatever is fashionable uh, uh, in, in terms of dogma. And that, that's a big mistake. You have this deep ideological division unfortunately, uh, between left and right. And the, the, the left, the progressives are more or less in control. Uh, and and they, they would rather teach what's, pro what's progressive than what's factual. One of the other big through lines in the book is military overexpansion. You talk about that with Rome and with Britain yeah. and, and now with the United States. What is it about military overexpansion that contributes to this collapse? Well, that was a major problem in Rome, of course. Rome was tremendously overexpanded. They extended all the way from England, all the way across Gaul and Europe and Italy, of course, and Greece and North Africa and into the Middle East. They simply could not defend all that territory. Uh, and there were massive influxes of migrants coming in who they could not assimilate and they could not afford to defend and they although they had a wonderful army eventually they simply could not defend against that and that happened in other empires like the spanish empire and the british empire which i talk about in chapter two of my book they got vastly overexpended i mean the british empire controlled something like 15 or 20 percent of the land mass of the entire world they simply could not afford to defend and, and manage all of that empire. And so eventually they couldn't any longer. And they lost their empire. And then after World War II, the British also uh, decided to have a welfare state and move towards socialism. And they lost their economy. And by the 70s, they were total broke. And they, were, they had an economy that was where it was known as the British disease, and I was there and saw it firsthand. They simply lost their ability to control and manage those vast empires, and, and they declined. Then under Margaret Thatcher, they went back to uh, more or less capital free market, uh, private property modes, and, and they recovered their, their uh, economy, although they never recovered their empire. So and, all those lessons are lessons for us. 
and we have overexpanded. The Iraq War was exam an example of that early in this century. Uh, we simply had, there was no reason for us to fight that war. So we got embroiled in the Middle East, which is vastly expensive and cost us a lot of money and, and a lot of lives and uh, gains us nothing. I know you were uh, college classmates with Donald Rumsfeld, who played right. a, a major role in, in our foreign policy over That's the last right. few I've decades. That's right. I have had this conversation with Don many times. What, what is, what's his response? Well, his, he, did, he, he did a good job. And, and, and in essence, he, he made, Don said, you fight the wars with the army that you have, not that the army that you would want to have. So you do the best that you could. And in fact, uh, we did a pretty good job in terms with what we had. It's just that we didn't need to do a lot of what we were doing. Right. And the same is true in Afghanistan. We, we had to fight after 9-11. We had to go in and get rid of uh, al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and we did that. And we should have called it victory and gone home, but we stayed. And we're still there. For what? Right, right. And that's... I, you know, it's the dichotomy of of having the, this big military is that we, we have all these resources. We, we are stretched out across the world that we feel like we need to protect. But when you have this giant military, now you feel like you, you have to – I mean, it's why Washington and a lot of the founding fathers were opposed to standing armies in the first place, right? It's that they felt like if you had this standing permanent army, they're going to go out and seek wars well, just to keep I themselves would, busy. I would question that a little bit, Eric, in the sense that we do need to be – um, we are a military power because we're a great power. And there are occasions when we need to use our military. And so we need to be strong rather than weak. And Don Rumsfeld believed that, and he was right, and, and I believe that. In other words, you don't have to use your army. You don't have to go abroad in search of monsters. To... You want to husband your military power and only use it when you have to, but you still have to have it. And we do have enemies, such as China, who are very aggressive and, and are militarizing the South China Sea and so forth. And while we don't need to be aggressive, we do need to be prepared for contingencies that may arise in the world. And there are other potential enemies like Russia that we need to worry about although we don't need to seek out and become aggressive or engage in unnecessary uh, enterprises abroad, we do need to be prepared in case something happens. Does Secretary Rumsfeld feel that you know, under his watch and, and under the, the George Bush administration that we did use the military responsibly? I mean, what's his feeling now looking back on Iraq and Afghanistan? Well, I, I, I don't know. I haven't talked to him lately about it, but I, I think the answer is that we had to, after 9-11, we had to use our military power. I mean, we were faced with al-Qaeda, which was, and the Islamic State, which were very powerful in their own ways. And, and we, our, our, my, our vital interests were affected, and we had to stand up against that. And we did, and I think we did that successfully. But then we, we, in, we left uh, a lot of troops abroad, which was, not necessarily a good idea. And we engaged in nation building, which was very controversial in the Balkans and in Afghanistan and elsewhere. We can't turn those nations into democracies. 
They have to become democracies themselves if they want to, and we can help them do that through financial and advice and matters like that, but we can't force them to become democratic republics. This is where I, th- I think there's always a problem because there, there's always going to be an emergency that arises abroad and domestically. There's always going to be another ISIS or another China. And, and domestically, you know, when, when people advocate for increased spending, it's it's always because there's there's some major issue. Obviously, this past year we had the coronavirus pandemic, and so we spent six plus trillion dollars just combating that and 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 trying to stimulate the economy uh, because of everything that happened with that. How do you draw the line between what it is that we actually need to spend money on or what wars we need to fight and when we need to be a little more prudent? Well, the the answer to that is prudence. <laughs> you know, there were there were four classical virtues, prudence, courage, temperance, and justice. Prudence is the first. And uh, you, just, you have to learn that by studying history. You have to learn when not to overexpand. You have to learn... You have to be strong, but not use your power except when you have to, and that's that takes a lot. That takes that takes courage, and temperance, and justice, and the other virtues. Plus, you need the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and charity, and that's another whole subject. Why you do you? Oh, go morality. ahead. Right, absolutely. I, and I want to ask you about that, but first, I wanted to ask you about why do you feel like. China is such a threat because it seems like that they're going against everything you write about in the book, that they, they are an expansive empire. They, they have a lot of centralized control and command. Do, do you think that they're going to burn out maybe in a similar way that the Soviet Union did? Well, you, you cannot predict what countries are going to do. You cannot predict that. All you can do is to prepare yourself against possibilities and eventualities. So it's, it's not a question of reading people's minds and, and trying to ex- anticipate what they're going to do. It's a question of being prepared. And, and uh, again, that's prudence. And it depends on learning a lot from history. Sure, I mean, the Chinese, they're not an immediate threat to us domestically, although they are developing hypersonic missiles and space technology which we need to worry about and prepare against. We don't need to go into the South China Sea and and necessarily start a war, but we do need to be prepared in case something happens that would affect our our vital national interests. And I, I want to go back to you brought up morality earlier earlier. What again does it seem like it's a cycle that repeats itself that once a society becomes prosperous to a certain extent they they get this hubris i guess they, they feel like they don't need to look towards anything higher that they can just enjoy the the That's prosperity right. that they have so how right. how is it that you can maintain prosperity and morality because it, it seems like historically that they don't go hand in hand very well well one thing is you need to retain your religious basis you need to retain the underlying basis of religion and if you lose that uh, you're going to lose your morality because morality is based on some basic foundations. And, and one of those foundations is religion. And unfortunately, in the 20th century, we began to dissipate the, our religious foundations and our moral foundations, which are tied together. And, and once that begins to deteriorate, 
then, uh, you know, luxury takes over and, and softness and indolence and sensuality take over and you lose your moral bearings. Now, now cr- critics will say that it's a good thing that we, we needed to lose the power of religion because it can be so, uh, you look at, you look at the power of the Catholic church historically, that they can be oppressive. They can be tyrannical. And even this, the recent scandals in the Catholic church, that religion isn't always such a great thing. They've done, they've done horrific things and that we're better without that. Well, sure. But that's, that's not because of religion. That's because of the abuse of power by, by some of some portion of the Catholic clergy. I mean, because you have power doesn't mean you should misuse it. You have to control power. You have to limit power. Limited government, that's what Madison and, and Jefferson and Washington were, were interested in, is limiting power. That doesn't mean you can't have power, but you have to limit it and control it by the people, by constitutional uh, requirements and limitations. What's the best example of a long-term society that has had limited power is, is it the early part of the united states and what could well, that yeah. go ahead well, you, it's it's england had it england we are we are an an inheritor of the anglo-american rule of law there's a very good book on that recently by my friend uh, nick capaldi called the anglo-american rule of law and uh you, you, you the English developed this beginning in Magna Carta, and, and they were a powerful nation, they, and they grew, and, and sometimes they abused their power in, in the Middle Ages and perhaps under Cromwell and others, but by and large, they controlled it by having powerful institutions such as parliament, such as uh, a, a peaceful and but strong nobility to defend against people like Henry VIII. And you had you had some bad periods, but then in the 17th century you had the the glorious revolution, which eventually took care of the power and and limited the power of the crown, so that you then had the king operating through parliament with uh, with serious limitations based on the rule of law, and that's the tradition that we inherited, and what we have to try to preserve, and we did inherit that, and in the American Revolution. We sought to recapture that. When George III and, and the English got out of control in terms of colonization, we went back to the founding fathers of the British, of the British tradition, Sir Edward, Sir Edward Cook and, and all the rest, and, and Magna Carta, and we learned that and we brought it into being with our founding fathers who set up a balanced constitution, a federal constitution with the rule of the law and the, and the, and and controls over power and that was the way to do it and we did it now it didn't always work and we did have slavery and we did have the civil war and so forth but after that we returned to to the lessons that we had learned and and we we had a relatively successful economy and society and a control over power uh, at least until recently it seems like it's it's hard to predict whether you're going to have you know when you do have these revolutionary periods like the glorious revolution or the american revolution whether you're going to have revolutions like that that lead to a more free a more prosperous society versus you know a french revolution or, or any of the many other countless revolutions yeah. yeah the french revolution is a good example how it got out of hand with the jacobins and badly out of hand 
And then you and, had to have a counter-revolution, and eventually you had Napoleon and, and the empire. And then, of course, in the 19th century, you had Marxism, which led to all sorts of problems in the Bolshevik Revolution, which I'm reading about now, uh, which was terrible. I mean, it was totally out of control. So you, you have to be able to control those excrescences by, by coming back again to the limitation of power. Well, and that's that's the hard part because it's it feels like we're in a revolutionary there's a, there's a revolutionary spirit in some sense now because because of all the protests and but these protests have devolved into riots have de devolved yeah. into destruction right. and so in some sense I I understand the unhappiness that people have it it does feel like there's a, there's so much inequality in society it does feel like it's it's hard for people to to get ahead when you look at the cost of housing and the and the cost of college I. I I understand people's unhappiness with the status quo. And the question is, well, if, if they don't feel like there's a means to affect change through the formal channels, the, the, they're going to feel like their only option is violence. Yeah, but, they're only, but that's not their only option. Their option is to peacefully protest. And the option is we have an electoral system. We have a constitutional system. Use that system. But don't abuse it. And what? So the protest, peaceful protest, is fine. But what happened last year in the, in the in 2020 is it got out of control, and riots and tillage and mayhem were happening in these cities, and the officials in, in charge weren't doing anything about it. You've got to restrain it. You've got to exercise the rule of law. And instead, they were just letting it happen. And you can't do that. Right, and that's where it seems like the. I, I don't understand what's going on with some of these institutions, with, with the police that have just allowed a lot of this, this violence to happen. I just watched another video of, of I forget what city it was, maybe Portland, but buildings getting destroyed and people getting into fights and the police yeah. just standing down. And you, can't, you, can, you, have the, you have the officials who are sort of, uh, you know, say, well, they're, pro they're protesters, they're young, uh, you know, let, let them set up these zones and so forth and let them go well you can't you can do that only so far and when they get out of hand and become violent and start looting and injuring people then you have to stop it and that's called the rule of law right and you have to be willing to do that i wanted to get your thoughts you, know, you talk a lot about the importance of decentralization and there's been talk lately about sort of a, a, an extreme decentralization, which is the, a, an idea of a national divorce, which is you know, this idea that maybe we're so far apart in our principles, in our, our ideologies in this country that the only thing that makes sense is to let people go their separate ways to however you want to do it, how, you know, split the country in two or, or allow the states to break away. What are your thoughts on that proposal? Well, uh, I mean... That, that's, a, of course, a very difficult question and historically a very fraught question. Uh, you, the Constitution does not forbid secession, but it's a terrible idea. And, and uh, states do have rights. And the reason the founders set up a federal system was so the states would have a lot of the power or most of the power. The, the police power was in the states not in the federal government. And that was to, to provide a safety valve. So if one state wants to go in a certain direction, 
to a limited extent, it can let them go, let them not secede, but let them go uh, and and become, you know, more or less progressive or more or less reactionary. Uh, and they can do that. States have enormous power under the police power, and they should have that power. And we've probably gotten gone too far in the other direction toward federal power. In other words, let the states have a lot of power. That's all right, as long as it's peaceful. Do you have a prediction of where we are on the the timeline of an empire? If if you had to place us on the on the timeline of of Rome or of well, look, we're, uh, Eric, we're not an empire. Now, this is arguable. We're not an empire like Rome was or even like Britain was. We're a federal republic. Now, we, we have some overseas possessions, Guam and so forth. And we did have more overseas possessions, the Philippines for a while. And, and you know, Puerto Rico is a dependency, but not a state. You know, we have aspects of, of of an empire but we're not an empire we got out of the middle east mostly should get out all together but we, we we've gotten we've gotten away from empire we're not an empire and and i think we've learned enough in the 20th century not to become an empire we have foreign interests and we have to be strong and we have trading interests all over the world I mean, we worry about the South China Sea because an enormous amount of the world's trade goes through there, just as an enormous amount of the world's trade goes through the Suez Canal. And that was a British holding at one time. Uh, and it's still very important to world trade. And we would worry if some dictator got totally hold of the, the, the Suez Canal and tried to control it completely. We would worry about that. So we have interests in the world that we have to protect, but we protect them as a republic, not as an empire. So I'll, I'll change I'll change the wording of the question then, because maybe empire is too strong of a word, but just as a society generally, I guess, do you see us? Do you see a, a collapse the way that the Romans collapsed, or do you see a, an upswing? No, I don't see us collapsing. I see us. I see us weakening. I see us as a welfare state, an administrative state that has gotten somewhat out of control. And look what's happening right now. I mean, the present administration is is planning on his proposed spending of $6 trillion. They've already spent $2 trillion. They've got $3 trillion more in infrastructure and another $2 trillion in so-called family spending. $6 trillion, that's with a T. Now, that's an enormous amount of money. I mean, we've got a national debt of $29 trillion, trillion with a T. We can't, there's no way we can pay that off. How can we possibly do that? So we, we, we have to be more diligent and more thrifty and more responsible in our spending. Do you have a, a way of getting there? You know, for, for me, I the only thing I know what to do is, is just to talk about this stuff and to try to have more well, conversations. Well, we, we like have this. to talk about it, Eric. But, but we, have, we have a Congress. We vote for that Congress. We have an election coming up next year. We, the people, are in control. We just don't exercise it responsibly in some cases. But we do have control. We are a, a republic. We are a, an elective republic. 
Well, Joe Johnson, I think that's a great place to end it. The book is The Decline of Nations. Thank you so much for talking with me. It's an excellent book. I'll include the link to it in the show notes so people can get it if they want. Uh, is there anywhere else you'd like to direct people? Well, no, I've, I've said a lot of what we were talking about in the book. It's got chapters on education, on society, on the Greek and on the Roman and, and the British Empire. And uh, I hope I hope you'll buy it and read. And Eric, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. I've enjoyed this conversation very much. 